on the spring of uh, 1980, a series of earthquakes have been uh, rumbling Skamania County, Washington. It brought many geologists from all around the world to see what's happening. Who, which one of you know? Who, who knows what was happening in Skamania County, Washington, 1980? What? Mount St. Helens. <clears throat> a volcano is about to burst. May 18, 1980, Mount St. Helens blew its top, literally. The eruption was, this volcano was so massive, it reduced the elevation of the summit by 1,300 feet. It, it dug a, a crater in the mountain in a horseshoe shape, two miles long and a half a mile deep. The avalanche caused by the explosion was nearly a cubic mile in volume, a cubic mile of rock just coming down the mountain. 57 people were killed, 250 homes destroyed, 47 bridges demolished, 185 miles of highway unusable. With such a massive explosion, the reason why only 57 died was because of the constant warnings that the uh, geologists sounded the months prior to the final explosion. Everybody knew full well what was happening. And uh, the authorities kept saying, get out of there, get out of there, get out of there. This mountain's about to blow. And uh, one man, though, refused to leave. His name was Harry Truman. You guys remember him? I don't personally, but I enjoyed reading about this man this week. He lived at the base of the mountain for over 50 years, operating, owning and operating Mount St. Helens Lodge, 54 acres, prime land on Spirit Lake. He had 100 boats, which he rented out to the people. He had a monopoly and was made rich by it, doing very well. Now, the reason why he died upon the mountain wasn't because the explosion came upon him unexpectedly. On the contrary, he knew full well the mountain was going to explode. The authorities gave him clear warning. They tried to get him off the mountain. Hey, this mountain's going to explode. And he said, no, I'm going to stay here. This is my lodge and I'm going to stay here. And he refused to leave. He preferred to remain on his resort where he died on May 18th along with his 16 cats who lived with him. As a result of his stance, Harry Truman became a national celebrity. As many of you can attest that many of you knew this person. Um, he, news reports scattered around the world about this man. People were anxious to speak with him and learn about his stubborn and quirky ways. He was interviewed by the Today Show. He, um, article was written about him in the New York Times. And uh, so great was his fame that according to one eyewitness, Robert Landon, the head of Washington State Patrol, stoic policeman, one eyewitness said that this man almost seemed awestruck in Harry Truman's presence. He had become such a celebrity figure. Well, about three days before the mountain exploded, National Geographic magazine was in a helicopter taking aerial photographs of uh, Mount St. Helens before it blew. And they happened to take um, Harry Truman to uh, the pupils at um, the elementary students at Clear Lake School near Mount St. Helens. He visited them because they'd written so many letters to him. So he said, okay, I will come and visit you. And uh, they said, what was life like? And he said this. He said, there are dozens of quakes every minute. There's never a dull moment. About the time things settled down, here comes another one of those babies. So, you know, the ground was kind of shaking. It was rumbling. And so he knew full well what was coming. One of the students asked him, do you know when the lava will come? He said, I wish I did because I would run. I'm going to tear down that hill as fast as I can. And in fact, his niece confirmed that these were his thoughts in his final days. He felt like everyone else that he'd be able to see the lava start to ooze down and a news helicopter would come in and scoop him up at the last minute. That's what he thought. Well, things obviously went different for him. 
Uh, one reporter, Don Hamilton is his name, covering the story, he had the opportunity to, to get to know Truman and visit him on the last day, June May 17th, before the mountain finally exploded. And, and uh, he promised even, I'll, I'll stay with you one night at the lodge before it explodes. And... Um, and that never never came about. But Truman even asked him as, as Don Hamilton was leaving. He said, um, "You going to stay tonight?" And uh, Don Hamilton writes, "I said not this time. I had to file a story. He had no phone. If he had a phone, I would have stayed that night and been buried with him when the mountain ex- erupted 16 hours later." He said once again he wasn't worried. And I said goodbye and walked back out of the um, out of the lodge. Well, Harry Truman had every reason to be worried that night. 8.32 in the morning, May 18th, the bulge on the right side of the mountains had given scientists reason to believe the mountain could, hap- could explode at any moment. took a, a great, um, as I call it here, uh, I forget, took a, uh, a blue, the north side of the mountain in an enormous lateral explosion. So you took out the, the north side of the mountain, just a lateral explosion. And rather than this easy lava trickle down the mountain, it was a searing blast that came at 300 miles an hour. And some, one scientist said that Truman probably had enough time to turn his head before it hit him. Well, things didn't turn out the way that Harry Truman had expected. And indeed, his ways weren't God's ways. He expected lava to just trickle down the mountain so he could flee as fast as he could. But God had other plans. God's ways were a gigantic explosion and created a gigantic crater in Mount St. Helens. Well, I say that as an illustration as we begin this morning's sermon. We're in a topical sermon series this summer entitled, Not Our Ways. We've been looking at the ways in which God acts contrary to what we might think in the way that He acts. The seed of these messages came from a a sermon preached by Edward Pace in the early 1800s entitled, God's Ways Above Men's. I read this sermon, I remember, a few years ago. It really challenged me, really encouraged me to show me so many different ways that God does things that are outside of the scope of even what I might think and just gives me a reason just to, to worship Him and adore Him for the God that He is. We have copies of the sermon on the back. I encourage you to read them. It would be good for your soul. It will help you catch up to speed what's taking place here. But two weeks ago, um, we looked at the problem of evil. How could an all-powerful, loving God create a world with evil in it? Was He simply not powerful enough to stop the evil, or was He not loving enough to stop it? And we dealt with that. Last week, we looked at the issue of imputation. Imputation is God's way of holding people accountable for the actions of others. Like it or not, we are held guilty for Adam's sin. But listen, without imputation, we're in trouble because it's through imputation that God holds us righteous in Christ. So we need to embrace those things. Well, in Payson's sermon, the, the third example of how God created a world that's different than ours has to do with angels and man. Let me read what uh, Edward Payson said that I'm going to expound upon this morning. Edward Payson said this, God's ways are not our ways in the difference that God has made between our race and the fallen angels. For the fallen angels, no way of salvation was provided. To them, no space for repentance, no day of grace, no offers of mercy were given, but their punishment immediately followed their offense. We, on the contrary, have space for repentance and are favored with offers of salvation and the means of grace. Christ took not hold of angels, says the apostle, but took hold of the seed of Abraham. But we should have thought that no difference ought to be made. 
or if either angels or men were to be left, that they should be saved rather than we, because they are of a higher rank in the scale of being. But God thought otherwise. And the only reason we can assign to it is so it seemed good in His sight. These words, Edward Payson is basically pointing out God's ways are not our ways in that God has provided a way for us of salvation, but for the fallen angels, He has provided no way of salvation. These fallen angels, or often called demons, have no opportunity for repentance. Once they have declared the rebellion against the Lord, it's over. It's done. No more chance for them to confess their sins and come back to God. We humans, however, on the other hand, have many, many, many opportunities for repentance. Daily, in fact, we have opportunities. And God is patient, in fact, before He pours out judgment upon mankind. He's patient, Second Peter 3.9, delaying His judgment, giving people time to repent from their sins and come back to God. It's the patience and kindness of God that should lead us all to repentance, Romans chapter 2, verse 4. And in this way, God has created a world which I think we probably wouldn't create that differentiates between the angelic world and the human world. God offers salvation to some of His creatures, but not to all of His creatures. But we would naturally think that if God offers salvation to some in need of salvation, we'd expect Him to be only right for God to extend the offer of salvation to all of His intelligent creatures. Maybe the ACLU will come after God for not offering salvation to the angels. We, We don't know. I mean, I just know that I was always taught by my parents, mom and dad, thank you very much, that if I had some candy, what do I need to do? I shouldn't eat candy in front of anybody unless I have enough to share with everybody. But that's what God has done. Is a candy of salvation that is shared only with humans and not to angels who desperately need it. We see this distinction made clearly in our text this morning. If you've done so already, I invite you to open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2. We're going to look at one verse and really use this as a launching pad this morning. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 16. Assuredly, he does not give help to angels. But he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. It's a short verse. We can read it again. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. His text cuts right in half. First half, first part is talking about angels. The second part is talking about people. The writer of the Hebrews says that God doesn't help angels. But on the other hand, the writer says that God does, in fact, help men. The best way to understand this verse is to take it to mean that God offers no salvation to angels who've fallen into sin, but that He brings salvation to people who have fallen into sin. The previous verse, verse 15, speaks about the saving work of Jesus, how He came to to free those who through the fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. talking about Christ coming and helping and freeing people, but doing that for men, but not for angels. God came and helped us who were imprisoned to death our whole lives by sending His Son to rescue us from our distress. He did this for those of us who are human, but not for those who are angels. That's what verse 16 says. God has not extended His helping hand to angels 
at all. Now, before we continue on, I just want to make a footnote here about uh, translations. Almost every translation translates it about kind of what I said. The King James translation, though, is a little bit different. And in case you have a King James translation in your lap, I'm not sure if anyone does, but if you do, um, you might be reading it a bit differently. King James translation says, Truly he did not take the nature of angels, but took hold of the seed of Abraham. In the sense, he didn't, he didn't come in the form of an angel, but came in the form of man. Now that's true. Uh, contextually, even you can argue with that, because verse 14 even speaks about the incarnation. Um, the word here, taking the form of, or taking the nature of, or giving help, it's all the same word, Greek words, epilambano. It means to, to take hold of, to grab, to rescue, perhaps. Or it might even, you could, you could use it in the context of the incarnation, taking hold of, of human form. You could say that. But I think the reason why the King James translation is wrong is because of the tense of the verb. Look, look at the tense of the verb here in verse 16. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. What, what tense is that verb in? Present tense. All right? What that means is, it, is that God is doing that right now. It means he's continually helping the seed of Abraham and he's continually not helping the angels. If the idea of the incarnation takes place like uh, the King James says it, it means that he's always being incarnated. And that's not the case. Jesus isn't in flesh and blood now. He's at the right hand of God the Father on high. And so he's not continually becoming flesh. So I think what this means is that he is continually helping the children of men. Talking about how he helps this word epilambano. Is used in, in Matthew chapter 14. Maybe you remember the story when Jesus came to his disciples walking on the water. Jesus is walking there. Peter sees in the boat, sees Jesus walking on the water and says, Lord, if that's you, command me, let me come to you. Jesus says, come. And so Peter takes a few steps under the water and then what happens? Remember? He begins to freak out. Whoa! And, and he became frightened and we can sense he started to sink. And you know what Jesus did? He epilambanoed his hand and grabbed Peter and brought him into the boat safely. That's what God continually does with us. He's a continual help. In our fears and doubts and worries and distresses, Jesus takes hold of us and helps us. But he doesn't do this with angels, which leads to my first point this morning. No help for the angels. No help for the angels. You know, we're so used to grace that um, we might you know, easily, e- easily even forget about this or easily not even think about this. But God doesn't give help to angels. He didn't help them in the past. He doesn't help them in the present. And He doesn't help them in the future. Assuredly, He does not give help to angels. Now, within the created universe, there are two classes of intelligent creatures who are created. Angels and human beings. And which ones are we, again? We're we're human beings, right? But there's another class of intelligent beings that's every bit as real as we are. Oftentimes forgotten, oftentimes neglected. I mean, when's the last time you really thought about angels? I mean, I just don't think about angels very much. But this verse does, and we're forced this morning even to think about it. But lest you think that angels aren't real, the Bible gives evidence to the contrary. The Bible speaks of angels hundreds of times. Hundreds of times. 
Angels are very real. Some doubt the reality because they're unseen and undetected. Maybe remember that verse in Hebrews 13, verse 2, that talked about how there are people in this world who've demonstrated kindness to strangers, bringing them in, um, helping them, hospitality, loving the strangers, and they went on their way. And what what the Bible says? It says they entertained angels unaware. And so if angels are you know, not even detected, people think they're out of sight and out of mind. But the angelic world is alive and well. In fact, our actions right now, the church, Rock Valley Bible Church, I'm not sure you know this, but are being watched by the angels above. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10 says, The angels are observing our actions, watching the manifold wisdom of God made known through the church. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12 speaks about how angels, um, not experiencing salvation themselves, long to look in the salvation that God has provided for us. Angels are watching us. And angels see the help that God has given to us. God's not given that help to them. And they look at those things and they study them. And we are very much in angels' minds, though angels perhaps might not be in our minds. Now, the difference between us and angels is vast. First of all, angels are eminently spiritual beings who possess much power and much authority. You don't want to mess with angels. Jude talks about the utter folly of those who revile angelic majesties. Those who do this, listen, have no idea the power of angels. In 2 Kings 19, the account is recorded of how a single angel destroyed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in one night. To give you a little bit of a context about how strong and powerful that is, remember when the nuclear bombs landed on Hiroshima and Nagasaki? Uh, I forget which one, but I was reading. Do you know how many people one of those bombs killed? 120,000. One day, nuclear bomb. And you've seen the pictures, maybe that fire, that explosion. It goes miles up in the sky. 120,000. An angel in one night killed 185,000. They're powerful beings. We, on the other hand, you take the strongest and mightiest of us and we are physical beings laced with weakness. Now, in great measure, angels are higher in the created order than we are. You think about, okay, intelligent beings, who's smarter, who's higher? It's not us. We're down here and the angels are up here. In fact, that's even in the context. Look at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 6. What is man, quoting from Psalm 8, what is man that you remember him? Or the son of man that you're concerned about him? You've made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor. You've appointed him over the works of your hands. You've put all things in subjection under his feet. Now, though all things in this creation are subject unto under our feet, we are still lower than the angels. What it says there in verse 7, we are below the angels. I think below in rank and power and authority. But with these words also, there's, there's a sense though that what's going to happen is that's going to be reversed someday, right? Because it says, what is man? You've made him for a little while lower than the angels. And the sense you get there is that, well, there's going to be a day when we're above the angels. It's only temporary. It's not going to be the case at some time, point in time. And there'll be a day we're exalted above the angels. In fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 3 says, we will judge the angels. So though they are above us, beyond us in power and intelligence and might, and we're lower, 
It's going to be a day where that's switched by God's grace. God pulls us up above the angels someday. But that's not the case now. It's only when God reverses this created order we'll experience this. At this moment, we're lower than the angels. But when finally glorified, it'll be reversed. In fact, that's what verse 8 says. In subjecting all things to Him and to man, He left nothing that is not subject to Him. But we do not yet see all things subjected to Him. That's the situation now. All things are not yet fully subjected to man. And it's clear from these verses that we're fundamentally different than the angels. We're a different class than they are. We are lower class citizens right now, in some sense. You take that, what it means. Well, as we are different classes of species than the angels, it would take us, it would be good for us to spend some moments thinking about these angels. Among the angels, there are two categories. Angels are either good or they're bad. It's like no in between, like no kind of good, no kind of bad angels. These are good angels, often identified words like holy, Mark 8, verse 38, or elect, 1 Timothy 5, verse 21. Now, the bad angels are identified with words like evil spirits or unclean spirits or demons. The holy angels are ascribed as those who give their allegiance to God, sometimes called angels of God. The evil angels... On the other hand, or describe those who give their allegiance to Satan. See, the devil has his angels as well. So I've kind of flipped back and forth between angels and demons. Those all, angels and demons, they all belong to the same class. They all the same nature. Now, morally, they're vastly different. But holy angels and demons have the same substance. In this way, they're like us. I mean, you think about people. There are wicked people. And there are righteous people. The Proverbs speak about how a righteous person acts and how a wicked person acts. With people, though, sometimes it's a little bit difficult to distinguish. Well, are they? How wicked are they? Are they good, righteous? How you know? It's kind of difficult because sometimes you can have some righteous people fall and do some wicked things. Right? When a believer gets caught in sin, and you can have some wicked people appearing to do some pretty righteous things. So for us, it's, you know, it's a little, little fuzzy. And what makes it even more fuzzy is that people can flip. The Bible is full of, of wicked people who repented of their sin, trusted in Christ, and became eminently righteous in Jesus. And you see people also who apparently seem to fall away from their faith. I say, I say apparent because once you become righteous, God will keep you forever. But there are people who look righteous who are really, really wicked, like the Pharisees. Are like that. You know, maybe Demas was one of those. Looked righteous. Or Judas looked righteous with Jesus. But in the end, he's the son of perdition when his true colors came shining through. But with, with angels, it's not that difficult at all. Every angel is either a good angel or a bad angel. Either a holy angel or an evil spirit. There's no flipping in between. A good angel can't become a bad angel and a bad angel can't become a good angel. Their ways were established once and for all, and that's where they will be. Somehow God has protected the good angels, the holy angels, that they'll never sin. They'll never go over the dark side. And these angels, the wicked angels, the demons, God has made it such that they they won't ever repent. They won't ever change from one side to the others. Somehow God doesn't move in the heart of angels. If angels have hearts. Supposed to see them transformed from being a wicked angel to being a good angel. 
Right? For wicked angels, there's no hope for them to be transformed. God doesn't save any demons. They'll be wicked and evil and anti-God throughout all eternity. Here's the thing you catch. It's not that they don't have a need to change. They have a need to be transformed. They have a need for salvation. Otherwise, they're going to spend eternity burning in hell, which they will. But God has chosen not to help them. That's the point of Edward Payson. Payson says, The fallen angels, no way of salvation was provided. To them, no space for repentance, no day of grace, no offers of mercy were given, but their punishment immediately followed their offense. Right? And that's somewhat the point here of Hebrews 2.16. He doesn't give help to angels. Particularly here, it might be he didn't need to save the righteous angels, but he doesn't come and save wicked angels either. And throughout Scripture, you'll search in vain for any passage of Scripture that ever speaks about angels converting. Well, to understand why this is the case, we need to really go back to the creation. Ultimately, we don't know much about how or when exactly the angels were created. We have a window of time, right? God says in Genesis that God created the world in six days. And by the end of the six days, it says in um, Exodus 20, verse 11, that the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. So in six days, somewhere He made the angels, but we don't know exactly when He made the angels. But we do know that when they were created, they were created sinless. Because God saw all that He had made, and behold, it was very good. Genesis 1, verse 31. But somehow, after the six days of creation, until the day that Satan tempted Adam and Eve, something dreadfully went wrong. Satan had obviously fallen into sin. He was in the garden tempting Eve with sinful thoughts, which obviously were coming from his fallen mind. And so somehow, from the creation to the time of the temptation, we see Satan sinning and falling in sin. So we gather more information about what took place. We find that when Satan rebelled, he brought many followers with him in his rebellion. He didn't fall alone. Jesus spoke about the eternal fire that's had been prepared for the devil and his angels. In fact, many will interpret Revelation 12, verse 4. It speaks about a dragon sweeping away a third of the stars by implying that perhaps that was Satan going with a third of the angelic hosts followed him. That's conjecture. We don't know. In fact, as I studied angels this week, I came out with more questions than I had answers. Though there are hundreds of verses that speak about angels, there's not a lot of detail as much as there is detail how God deals detail how God deals with us. But anyway, there was some point he was created good, Satan rebelled, came with his angels, and then there are other verses that basically say these that sinned, there are some angels that God has kept bound for judgment. Just kind of kept them. Now angels, senses, they, they don't die, they're eternal beings. They don't procreate. We know that. Jesus said that um, in the resurrection we'll be like angels, neither marrying nor giving in marriage. They you know, they're just eternal beings. And there's some that, that when they sinned, God said, that's it. You just wait there for judgment. It says that in Second Peter chapter 2, verse 4, God cast them into hell, committed them to pits of darkness, reserved for judgment. And they're bound. Some of these angels are bound, just waiting for the judgment day. God's giving no opportunity for repentance. Jude says the angels who do not keep their own domain but abandon their proper abode, God has kept in eternal bounds under darkness for eternal Judgment of that great day. They're like prisoners on death row with no opportunity for appeal. So these angels are. 
Assuredly, He does not give help to angels. Now, let me just ask you, if you create a world, would you create it this way? I mean, you've created things, time of your life, whether it's, a, it's an art something or maybe you did some pottery. And, you know, when it breaks, what's your natural tendency at first to do? You want to fix it. This is a creation. This is what I've made. And, and this part broke off. And so I want to fix it. But when the angels broke off, God said, I'm not going to fix them. I'm just going to throw them away. Is that the way you would have created the world if you were God? One sin and you're out. Sudden death with God. That's what we did with the angels. You know, our society is into giving people second chances. Our society is given, in, given to have people have third chances and fourth chances and fifth chances. It's amazing. But not so with God and angels. He gave them one chance. When they blew it with Satan, He said, well, that's where you're going to be. It's not like they don't know, right? James says that the demons believe and know about God and the judgment coming. And what do they do? They shudder. They know the judgment's coming. You know, I think sometimes we become so used to our own salvation in Christ, we expect everybody to have a chance. But it's not so with the angels. They're those holy angels who have chosen to serve the Lord. They serve Him night and day. And they're great. They will be with God forever. In fact, right now, seraphim around the throne saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. But there are others, those evil angels that have chosen to rebel against the Lord. They're awaiting judgment no hope. It's the way God has made the world. I trust that God's ways are not our ways. Well, no help for angels, but praise the Lord. He didn't do this with us. Right? My second point here this morning. There is help for people. Look back again, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 16. Assuredly, He does not give help to angels, but He gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Literally, this verse reads, but He gives help to the seed of Abraham. That is, I think He's talking here about Abraham's spiritual descendants who believe in Jesus Christ. It's us. God helps us. God helps us who are Abraham's children by faith. Those are the ones He helps. As we consider our God gives help to people, we need to look no further than right here in Hebrews chapter 2. There are three ways in which the, the section of Scripture, verses 14 to 18, show ways in which He helped and is helping mankind. Look at verses 14 and 15. Jesus helps us in that He has conquered death for us. Look at verse 14. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood... He himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through the fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. To save us, he became like us, is what verse 14 says. He took on flesh and blood. And in becoming like us, he suffered. Becoming obedient to the point of death, death on the cross, becoming... Suffering, He died. But the death of Jesus was like no other death. We know that when Jesus died, death didn't contain Him. A few days after He died, He rose from the dead, conquered death. What once held its power over us no longer holds its sting. I mentioned earlier about the nuclear bomb. That is our most ultimate devastating weapon on earth. It's a nuclear bomb. And we're all worried today about North Korea. And worried about Iran because this, this weapon is like so massive and so huge that we fear it so greatly and we ought to. 
Well, the ultimate weapon that Satan possesses is death. Somehow, in some way, verse 14 says that Satan had power over death. He had the power of death. This was Satan's weapon of war that he had that he wielded. And he wields it about like Iran wields the threat of having nuclear weapons soon at some point. Maybe they do. But listen, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Satan's been disarmed. That big stick that he used to carry isn't such a big stick anymore. Oh, it can hurt us. Who's looking forward to the process of dying? Not me. Maybe you can, okay, but I'm not. The process of dying is a scary, scary thing. But the fear of death should be removed from us because we know it's not the end. And in this we're free. You know, I, I think about maybe the best way to illustrate this is that the biggest weapon that Satan can aim at us has been rendered powerless. You know, Satan might take this big gun of death, you know, and, and aim it at each one of you. And you'd probably be scared. He's ready to shoot it. But you realize God has taken away his bullets. He's merely put a tranquilizer dart in there. So when he, when he gets you, you might go to sleep. But very soon after that, you'll wake up and you'll be just fine. That's what Satan has. The same way when you die, your soul will live like never before. I love the way that D.L. Moody put it. He said, someday you'll read in the papers that Moody is dead. Don't you believe a word of it. In that moment, I shall be more alive than I am now. I was born of the flesh in 1837. I was born of the Spirit in 1855. That which is born of flesh may die. That which is born of the Spirit shall live forever. And that's what verse 14 and 15 is talking about. When Christ came, He abolished Satan's power over death. That's how He helped us. Jesus conquered death for us. In verse 17, we see how Jesus helps us. And He's a high priest for us. I mean, that's, that's what verse 17 says. Therefore, He had to be made like His brethren in all things. Again, talking about the incarnation. Being like His brethren. Being like us. So that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. You know, in the Old Testament economy, it was the role of the high priest to come before God representing the people. They'd bring a sacrifice before God. They'd bring their prayers. They'd offer up the sacrifice and plead and pray that God would accept that sacrifice on behalf of the people at their backs. That's how a high priest is. As God accepted their sacrifice, God wouldn't punish them for their sins. You know what? That's exactly what Jesus has done for us in becoming our great high priest. But He didn't bring an animal which could never take away sins. Rather, He offered up Himself upon the cross. And in so doing, the wrath of God has been turned away from us who believe. That's what propitiation means. When you see that word propitiation, think wrath. You know, Somehow in, in the middle of those, right, propitiation wrath means that God has turned away His wrath from us. <clears throat> God's wrath completely satisfied the payment of Christ upon the cross. Unlike the high priests of the Old Testament, which used to come often to offer up their sacrifices, our high priest doesn't need daily to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins, then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. It's what Jesus did. He paid the price for our sin with his blood, and thereby he helped us, and he is helping us in the sense that he's our high priest. 
<clears throat> Recently, I read a great story that illustrates this far better than I ever could. It's called The Room. Um, girls Bible Study, uh, we showed a, a video one time about The Room and kind of talked about it. They, they took this story that Joshua Harris wrote, made it into like a six-minute video that's very powerful. But I want to read the story for you. kind of gives you a sense of the high priest and what Jesus did. illustrates verse 17 perfectly. Joshua Harris writes, In that place between wakefulness and dreams, I found myself in the room. There were no distinguishing features save for the one wall covered with small index card files. They're like the ones in libraries that list titles and by author or subject in alphabetical order. But these files would stretch from floor to ceiling and seemingly endlessly in either direction had very different headings. As I drew near the wall of files, the first to catch my attention was one that read, Girls I Have Liked, quote-unquote. I opened it and began flipping through the cards. I quickly shut it, shocked to realize that I recognized the names written on each one. And then without being told, I knew exactly where I was. This lifeless room with its small files was a crude catalog system for my life. Here were written the actions of my every moment, big and small, in a detail my memory couldn't match. A sense of wonder and curiosity coupled with horror stirred within me as I began randomly opening files and exploring their content. Some brought joy and sweet memories and others a sense of shame and regret so intense that I would look over my shoulder to see if anyone was watching. A file named Friends was next to one marked Friends I've Betrayed. The titles ranged from the mundane to the outright weird. Books I have read. Lies I have told. Comfort I have given. Jokes I have laughed at. Some were almost hilarious in their exactness. Things I've yelled at my brothers. Others I couldn't laugh at. Things I've done in my anger. Things I've muttered under my breath at my parents. I never ceased to be surprised by the contents. Often, there were many more cards than I expected, sometimes fewer than I hoped. I was overwhelmed by the sheer volume of the life that I had lived. Could it be possible that I had the time in my 20 years to write each of these thousands or even millions of cards? But each card confirmed this truth. Each was written in my own handwriting and each signed with my signature. When I pulled out the file marked Songs I Have Listened To, I realized the files grew to contain their contents. The cards were packed tightly, and yet after two or three yards, I hadn't found the end of that file. I shut it, shamed not so much by the quality of music, but more by the vast amount of time I knew that file represented. When I came to a file marked Lustful Thoughts, I felt a chill run through my body. I pulled the file out only an inch, not willing to test its size, and drew out a card. I shuddered at its detailed content. I felt sick to think that such a moment had been recorded. An almost animal rage broke on me. One thought dominated my mind. No one must ever see these cards. No one must ever see this room. I have to destroy them. In an insane frenzy, I yanked the file out. Its size didn't matter now. I had to empty it and burn the cards, but as I took it at one end and began pounding on the floor, I could not dislodge, dislodge even a single card. 
became desperate and pulled out a card only to find it as strong as steel when I tried to tear it. Defeated and utterly helpless, I returned the file to its slot. Leaning my forehead against the wall, I let out a long, self-pitying sigh. And then I saw it. The title bore, People I Have Shared the Gospel With. The handle was brighter than those around it, new or almost unused. I pulled in its handle and a small box, not more than three inches long, fell into my hands. I could count the cards it contained in one hand. And then the tears came. I began to weep. Sobs so deep, they hurt. The hurt started my stomach and shook through me. I fell on my knees and cried. I cried out of shame from the overwhelming shame of it all. The rows of file shells swirled in my tear-filled eyes. No one must ever, ever know this room. I must lock it and hide the key. But then as I pushed away the tears, I saw him. No, please, not him. Not here. Oh, anyone but Jesus. I watched helplessly as he began to open the files and read the cards. I couldn't bear to watch his response. In the moments I could bring myself to look at his face, I saw a sorrow deeper than my own. He seemed intuitively to go to the worst boxes. Why did he have to read every one? Finally, he turned and looked at me from across the room. He looked at me with pity in his eyes. But this was a pity that didn't anger me. I dropped my head, covered my face with my hands, and began to cry again. He walked over and put his arm around me. He could have said so many things, but he didn't say a word. He just cried with me. Then he got up and walked back to the wall of files. Starting at one end of the room, he took out a file and one by one began to sign his name over mine on each card. No, I shouted as I rushed to him. All I could find to say was, no, no. So I pulled the card from him. His name shouldn't be written on those cards, but there it was. Written in red, so rich, so dark, so alive. The name of Jesus covered mine. It was written in his blood. He gently took the card back. He smiled a sad smile and began to sign the cards. I don't think I'll ever understand how he did it so quickly, but the next instant it seemed that I heard him close the last file and walk back to my side. He placed his hand on my shoulder and said, It is finished. I stood up and he led me out of the room. There was no lock on the door. There were still more cards to be written. Well, that story really captures the essence of what Jesus did as a role of a high priest so perfectly. First of all, he made propitiation for sins in signing his name over ours, washing it, wiping it clean in blood. But it also shows the fact of the high priest putting his arm around the sinner. No cold indifference with Jesus when he did on the cross. He's tender and compassionate. Or as the text says here in verse 17, he's merciful. He looks at our sin with sadness. He doesn't condemn us. Or he puts his arm around us and weeps with us. He's completely dependable. You won't find a day which Jesus takes off from his high priestly duties. The heavenly confession booth is never closed. It's always open, waiting for us to come to the high priest for help. And that's what it says here in verse 17. He's not only merciful, he's a faithful high priest.
high priest. He's always there. He's always ready to forgive the one who believes in Him. And in this way, Jesus gives help to the seed of Abraham by being a high priest for us. Well, finally, the third way that He helps us, verse 18, is that Jesus helps us in temptation. It says there, verse 18, For since He Himself was tempted in that which He has suffered, He is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. You know, this is really the great reality of the Incarnation. When Jesus walked among us, He experienced temptation like all of us face. In fact, the temptation that He faced was of a greater intensity than any of us will ever face. He faced it all. In His greatest weakness, Jesus faced His greatest enemy who came with the greatest temptations and Jesus passed through that trial without sinning. After 40 days of fasting, Jesus was hungry and Satan came to Him with all the craftiness that He could possibly muster. And Satan said, Jesus, command these stones to become bread. Jesus didn't do it. He quoted... Deuteronomy, man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Satan tempted Jesus to prove who God is. Throw yourself down. Psalm 91, He will command His angels concerning you. And Jesus said, no, it's written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Satan tempted Jesus with power and authority. All these things, all the kingdoms I'll give you if you just bow down and worship Me. And Jesus said, no. So worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. Every single case, Jesus was victorious. He didn't sin. And that very fact that Jesus has been there, done that, and lived victoriously makes Him able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Let me ask you, were you tempted this week at all? Any of you need help in time of your temptation this week? You know, Jesus is ready to help you in your time of trouble. He's our perfect help because Jesus Himself has experienced a great trial of suffering and gone through it. He's qualified Himself to be our greatest help. You know what? None of those cards in that room that are sinful in your room of life need ever be written because God is faithful. And as 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13 says, He won't allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. Right? But with the temptation, will provide a way of escape that you may be also able to endure it. Now, the way of escape might be different in every circumstance. In some cases, it might just mean turning away. In some cases, it might mean putting your head down and working harder. In some cases, it might mean just grinning and bearing through it. But in all cases, though the exact solution is different, in all cases, it's all the same. You need to go to your high priest who will help you. That's what verse 18 says, right? Since he himself was tempted, that which he said, he's able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. How do you find escape? You come to Jesus. You seek Him and say, Jesus, I'm being tempted right now. Help me. Show me the escape. And I'll show you the way out. He gives help to the seed of Abraham. And I just say, dear people, don't ever take this for granted. He doesn't give help to angels. He gives help to the seed of Abraham. You know, God could have made a universe in such a way that He helped no creature. Put all of us on our own and say, okay, have at it, guys. In some sense, He did that with angels. Didn't help them. Wasn't obligated to help them. And you know what? He was never obligated to help us either. 
And perhaps it might be that God's way with angels was a deliberate choice of God to teach us His ways of grace with us. He deals with us, not like He deals with angels, but He deals with us mercifully and kindly in becoming our high priest and coming and helping us in time of trouble and distress and temptations. His ways with us are the ways of help. It's not His ways with angels. I don't know why it is that God has chosen to help us and not the angels, but I'm thankful. Are you? We need Him. I don't care if you're the smartest, strongest, richest guy in the world. You need the Lord. If you've never bowed the knee to Him, crying to Him for mercy, boy, I encourage you, do that today. Do it today because we all need Him. And He's able and willing. All who come to Him, He'll in no ways cast out. So come to Jesus. We need the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you'd take my feeble words, my feeble attempts to show how how great your grace is to us, to show us that your ways aren't our ways, your thoughts aren't our thoughts. I thank you that you've chosen to help us. I pray for each and every one of us that we would avail ourselves of that help, that we would go to him who is able to help us in our temptation. Lord, I pray we'd see the sufficiency of Christ, how He's taken the fear of death away from us, how He's become the faithful high priest offering up Himself, the perfect sacrifice, one who cares and loves for us and is ready to help us in temptation. Help us this week in these things. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.